Welcome to this audiobook recording of The Odyssey. Before we begin, a few important reminders. First of all, it is going to be best if you read along in your copy of The Odyssey rather than just listening, and certainly rather than listening while you multitask and do other things. The names of people and places in this book can be confusing and you will have an easier time remembering them and keeping them straight if you read along. In addition to reading along in your book, you may wish to have your character list handy, and remember that for each book you have study guide questions to complete. We will preview the study guide questions at the start of each book so that you can keep them fresh in your mind as you read. Now, on to the Odyssey. Before we dive into book one, let's take a look at our study guide questions. Your first question is this. What happened to Agamemnon upon returning home from the Trojan War? Why might Homer have chosen to include his story at this point in the poem? Number two. What has happened between Odysseus and Poseidon? Number three. Characterize Athena. What kind of person is she? What does the reader learn about her in the opening book? And what is the purpose of her visit to Ithaca? And number four, characterize Telemachus. What kind of person is he in the beginning of book one? And how has he changed by the end of the book? Note that all these questions ask you to focus on the characters, their personalities, and relationships. Again, you might want to keep your character list handy as you read book one. Book One. Speak memory of the cunning hero, the wanderer blown off course time and again after he plundered Troy's sacred heights. Speak of all the cities he saw, the mines he grasped, the suffering deep in his heart at sea as he struggled to survive and bring his men home, but could not save them, hard as he tried. The fools destroyed by their own recklessness when they ate the oxen of Hyperion the sun, and that god snuffed out their day of return. Of these things speak, immortal one, and tell the tale once more in our time. others who had fought at Troy, at least those who had survived the war and the sea, were safely back at home. Only Odysseus still longed to return to his home and his wife. The nymph Calypso, a powerful goddess and beautiful, was clinging to him in her caverns and yearned to possess him. The seasons rolled by, and the year came in which the gods spun the thread for Odysseus to return home to Ithaca. 
Though not even there did his troubles end, even with his dear ones around him. All the gods pitied him except Poseidon, who stormed against the godlike hero until he finally reached his own native land. But Poseidon was away now, among the Ethiopians, those burnished people at the ends of the earth, some near the sunset, some near sunrise, to receive a grand sacrifice of rams and bulls. There he sat, enjoying the feast. The other gods were assembled in the halls of Olympian Zeus, and the father of the gods and men was speaking. He couldn't stop thinking about Aegisthus, whom Agamemnon's son Orestes had killed. Mortals, they are always blaming the gods for their troubles, when their own witlessness causes them more than they were destined for. Take Aegisthus now. He marries Agamemnon's lawful wife and murders the man on his return, knowing it meant imminent disaster. Because we did warn him, sent our messenger Quicksilver Hermes, to tell him not to kill the man and marry his wife, or Agamemnon's son Orestes would pay him back when he came of age and wanted his inheritance. Hermes told him all that, but his good advice meant nothing to Aegisthus. Now he's paid in full. Athena glared at him with her owl-gray eyes. Yes, O oh, our father who art most high, that man got the death he richly deserved, and so perish all who would do the same. But it's Odysseus I'm worried about, that discerning, ill-fated man. He suffered so long separated from his dear ones on an island that lies at the center of the sea a wooded isle that is home to a goddess, the daughter of Atlas, whose dread mind knows all the depths of the sea and who supports the tall pillars that keep the earth and heaven apart. His daughter detains the poor man in his grief, sweet-talking him constantly, trying to charm him into forgetting Ithaca. But Odysseus, longing to see even the smoke curling up from his land, simply wants to die. And yet you never think of him, Olympian. Didn't Odysseus please you with sacrifices beside the Greek ships at Troy? Why is Odysseus so odious, Zeus? Zeus and his thunderhead had an answer for her. Quite a little speech you've let slip through your teeth, daughter. How could I forget godlike Odysseus? No other mortal has a mind like his or offer sacrifice like him to the deathless gods in heaven. But Poseidon is so stiff and cold with anger because Odysseus blinded his son, the Cyclops, Polyphemus, the strongest of all the Cyclops, nearly a god. The nymph Thusa bore him, daughter of Phorcys, lord of the barren brine, after mating with Poseidon in a sea scallop cave. The Earthshaker has been after Odysseus ever since, not killing him, but keeping him away from his native land. But come now, let's all put our heads together and find a way to bring Odysseus home. Poseidon will have to put his anger aside. He can't hold out against the will of all the immortals.
And Athena, the owl-eyed goddess, replied, Father Zeus, whose power is supreme, if the blessed gods really do want Odysseus to return home, we should send Hermes, our quicksilvered herald, to the island of Oogia without delay to tell the nymph of our firm resolve that long-suffering Odysseus gets to go home. I myself will go to Ithaca to put some spirit into his son, have him call an assembly of the long-haired Greeks and rebuke the whole lot of his mother's suitors. They have been butchering his flocks and herds. I'll escort him to Sparta and the sands of Pylos so he can make inquiries about his father's return and win himself a name among men. Athena spoke and she bound on her feet the beautiful sandals, golden, immortal, that carry her over the landscape and seascape on a puff of wind. She took the spear, bronze-tipped and massive, that the daughter uses to level battalions of heroes in her wrath. She shot down from the peaks of Olympus to Ithaca, where she stood on the threshold of Odysseus' outer porch. Holding her spear, she looked like Mentes, the Taphian captain, and her eyes rested on the arrogant suitors. They were playing dice in the courtyard, enjoying themselves, seated on the hides of oxen they themselves had slaughtered. They were attended by heralds and servants, some of whom were busy blending water and wine in large mixing bowls, others wiping down the tables with sponges and dishing out enormous servings of meat. Telemachus spotted her first, he was sitting with the suitors, nursing his heart sorrow, picturing in his mind his noble father, imagining he had returned and scattered the suitors, and that he himself, Telemachus, was respected at last. Such were his reveries as he sat with the suitors, and then he saw Athena. He went straight to the porch, indignant that a guest had been made to wait so long. Going up to her, he grasped her right hand in his and took her spear, and his words had wings. Greetings, stranger. You are welcome here. After you've had dinner, you can tell us what you need. Telemachus spoke, and Pallas Athena followed him into the high-roofed hall. When they were inside, he placed her spear in a polished rack beside a great column, where the spears of Odysseus stood in a row. Then he covered a beautifully wrought chair with a linen cloth and had her sit on it, with a stool under her feet. He drew up an intricately painted bench for himself and arranged their seats apart from the suitors, so that his guest would not lose his appetite in their noisy and uncouth company, and so he could inquire about his absent father. A maid poured water from a silver pitcher, into a golden basin for them to wash their hands, and then set up a polished table nearby. Another serving woman, grave and dignified, set out bread and generous helpings from the other dishes she had. A carver set down cuts of meat by the platter in golden cups. Then a herald came by and poured them wine. Now the suitors staggered in. They sat down in rows on benches and chairs. Heralds poured water over their hands. Maidservants brought them bread and baskets, and young men filled mixing bowls to the brim with wine, 
the suitors helped themselves to all this plenty. And when they had their fill of food and drink, they turned their attention to the other delights, dancing and song that round out a feast. A herald handed a beautiful zither to Phemius, who sang for the suitors, though against his will. Sweeping the strings, he struck up a song, and Telemachus, putting his head close to Pallas Athena's so the others couldn't hear, said this to her. Please don't take offense if I speak my mind. It's easy for them to enjoy the harper's song, since they are eating another man's stores without paying anything. The stores of a man whose white bones lie rotting in the rain on some distant shore, or still churn in the waves. If they ever saw him make landing on Ithaca, they would pray for more foot speed instead of more gold or fancy clothes. But he's met a bad end. And it's no comfort to us when some traveler tells us he's on his way home. The day has long passed when he's coming home. But tell me this and tell me the truth. Who are you and where did you come from? Who are your parents? What kind of ship brought you here? How did your sailor sailors guide you to Ithaca? And how large is your crew? I don't imagine you came here on foot. And tell me this, too. I'd like to know, is this your first visit here, or are you an old friend of my father's, one of the many who have come to our house over the years?" Athena's sea-gray eyes glinted as she said, I'll tell you nothing but the unvarnished truth. I am Mentes, son of Anchialus, and proud of it. I am also captain of the seafaring Taphians. I just pulled in with my ship and my crew, sailing the deep purple to foreign ports. We're on our way to Cyprus with a cargo of iron to trade for copper. My ship is standing offshore of wild country away from the city. In Ritheron Harbor under Nyon's woods, you and I have ties of hospitality, just as our fathers did from a long way back. Go ask old Laertes. They say he never comes to town anymore, lives out in the country, a hard life with just an old woman to help him. She gets him his food and drink when he comes in from the fields, all worn out from trudging across the ridge of his vineyard plot. I have come because they say your father has returned, but now I see the gods have knocked him off course. He's not dead though, not godlike Odysseus, no way in the world. No, he's alive all right. It's the sea keeps him back, detained on some island in the middle of the sea, held captive by savages. And now I will prophesy for you, as the gods put in my heart and as I think it will be, though I am no soothsayer or reader of birds. Odysseus will not be gone much longer from his native land, not even if iron chains hold him. He knows every trick there is, and will think of some way to come home. But now tell me this, and I want the truth. Tall as you are, are you Odysseus' son? You bear a striking resemblance to him, especially in the head and those beautiful eyes. We used to spend quite a bit of time together before he sailed for Troy with the Argive fleet. Since then, we haven't seen each other at all.
Telemachus took a deep breath and said, you want the truth and I will give it to you. My mother says that Odysseus is my father. I don't know this myself. No one witnesses his own begetting. If I had my way, I'd be the son of a man fortunate enough to grow old at home. But it's the man with the most dismal fate of all, they say I was born from, since you want to know. Athena's sea-gray eyes glinted as she said, Well, the gods have made sure your family name will go on, since Penelope has born a son like you. But there is one other thing I want you to tell me. What kind of party is this? What's the occasion? Some kind of banquet? A wedding feast? It's no neighborly potluck, that's for sure, the way this rowdy crowd is carrying on all through the house. Any decent man would be outraged if he saw this behavior. Telemachus breathed in the salt air and said, Since you ask me these questions as my guest, this, no doubt, was once a perfect house, wealthy and fine when its master was still home. But the gods frowned and changed all that when they whisked him off the face of the earth. I wouldn't grieve for him so much if he were dead, gone down with his comrades in the town of Troy, or died in his friend's arm after winding up the war. The entire Greek army would have buried him then, and great honor would have passed on to his son. But now the whirlwinds have snatched him away without a trace. He's vanished, gone, and left me pain and sorrow. He's not the only cause I have to grieve. The gods have given me other trials. All of the nobles who rule the islands, Dolichium, Same, Wooded, Zacanthus, and all those with power on rocky Ithaca are courting my mother and ruining our house. She refuses to make a marriage she hates, but can't stop it either. They are eating us out of house and home and will kill me someday. And Pallas Athena, with a flash of anger, damn them, you really do need Odysseus back. Just let him lay his hands on these mangy dogs. If only he would come through that door now with a helmet and shield and a pair of spears, just as he was when I saw him first drinking and enjoying himself in our house on his way back from Ephyr. Odysseus had sailed there to ask Marmara's son, Illus, for some deadly poison for his arrowheads. Illus, out of fear of the god's anger, would not give him any, but my father gave him some because he loved him dearly. That's the Odysseus I want the suitors to meet. They wouldn't live long enough to get married. But it's on the knees of the gods now whether he comes home and pays them back right here in his halls or doesn't. So it's up to you to find a way to drive them out of your house. Now pay attention and listen to what I'm saying. Tomorrow, you call an assembly and make a speech to these heroes with the gods as witnesses. The suitors you order to scatter, each to his own. Your mother, if in her heart she wants to marry, goes back to her father's house. Her kinfolk and he can arrange the marriage and the large dowry that should go with his daughter. 
And my advice for you, if you will take it, is to launch your best ship with 20 oarsmen and go make inquiries about your long absent father. Someone may tell you something, or you may hear a rumor from Zeus, which is how news travels best. Sail to Pylos first and ask godly Nestor, then over to Sparta and red-haired Menelaus. He was the last home of all the bronze-clad Greeks. If you hear your father's alive and on his way home, you can grit your teeth and hold out one more year. If you hear he's dead, among the living no more, then come home yourself to your ancestral land, build him a barrow, and celebrate the funeral your father deserves. Then marry off your mother. After you've done all that, think up some way to kill the suitors in your house, either openly or by setting a trap. You've got to stop acting like a child. You've outgrown that now. Haven't you heard how Orestes won glory throughout the world when he killed Aegisthus, the shrewd traitor who murdered his father? You have to be aggressive, strong. Look at how big and well-built you are. So you will leave a good name. Well, I'm off to my ship and my men, who are no doubt wondering what's taking me so long. You've got a job to do. Remember what I said. And Telemachus, in his clear-headed way, My dear guest, you speak to me as kindly as a father to his son. I will not forget your words. I know you're anxious to leave, but please stay so you can bathe and relax before returning to your ship, taking with you a costly gift, something quite fine, a keepsake from me, the sort of thing a host gives to his guest. And Athena, her eyes gray as salt water. No, I really do want to get on with my journey. Whatever gift you feel moved to make, give it to me on my way back home. Yes, yeah, something quite fine. It will get you as good. With these words, the gray-eyed one was gone, flown up and away like a seabird. And as she went, she put courage in Telemachus' heart and made him think of his father even more than before. Telemachus' mind soared. He knew it had been a god, and like a god himself, he rejoined the suitors. They were sitting hushed in silence, listening to the great harper as he sang the tale of the hard journey's home that Pallas Athena had ordained for the Greeks on their way back from Troy. His song drifted upstairs, and Penelope, wise daughter of Icarius, took it all in. She came down the steep stairs of her house, not alone, two maids trailed behind. And when she had come among the suitors, she stood shawled in light by a column that supported the roof of the great house, hiding her cheeks behind her silky veils, grave handmaidens standing on either side. And she wept as she addressed the brilliant harper, Phemius, you know many other songs to soothe human sorrows, songs of the exploits of gods and men. Sing one of those to your enraptured audience as they sit sipping their wine, but stop singing this one, this painful song that always tears at my heart. I am already sorrowful, constantly grieving for my husband, remembering him, 
a man renowned in Argos and throughout all Hellas. And Telemachus said to her coolly, Mother, why begrudge our singer entertaining us as he thinks best? Singers are not responsible. Zeus is, who gives what he wants to every man on earth. No one can blame Phemius for singing of the doom of the Danans. It's always the newest song an audience praises most. For yourself, you'll just have to endure it and listen. Odysseus was not the only man at Troy who didn't come home. Many others perished. You should go back upstairs and take care of your work, spinning and weaving and having the maids do theirs. Speaking is for men, for all men, but for me especially, since I am master of this house. Penelope was stunned and turned to go, her son's masterful words pressed to her heart. She went up the stairs to her room with the women and wept for Odysseus, her beloved husband, until gray-eyed Athena cast sleep on her eyelids. All through the shadowy halls, the suitors broke into an uproar, each of them praying to lie in bed with her. Telemachus cut them short. Suitors of my mother, you arrogant pigs. Now we're at a feast. No shouting, please. There's nothing finer than hearing a singer like this with a voice like a god's. But in the morning, we will sit in the meeting ground so that I can tell all of you in broad daylight to get out of my house. Fix yourself feasts in each other's houses. Use up your own stockpiles. But if it seems better and more profitable for one man to be eaten out of house and home without compensation, then eat away. For my part, I will pray to the gods eternal that Zeus grant me requital, death for you here in my house, with no compensation. Thus Telemachus. And they all bit their lips and marveled at how boldly he had spoken to them. Then Antinous, son of Eupithides, said, Well, Telemachus, it seems the gods, no less, are teaching you how to be a bold public speaker. May the son of Cronus never make you king here on Ithaca, even if it is your birthright. And Telemachus, taking in breath, It may make you angry, Antinous, but I'll tell you something. I wouldn't mind a bit if Zeus granted me this, if he made me king. You think this is the worst fate a man can have? It's not so bad to be king. Your house grows rich, and you're held in great honor yourself. But there are many other lords on sea-washed Ithaca, young and old, and any one of them could be king now that Odysseus is dead. But I will be master of my own house and of the servants that Odysseus left me. Then Eurymachus, Polybus' son, responded, It is on the knees of the gods, Telemachus, which man of Greece will rule this island. But you keep your property and rule your house, and may no man ever come to wrest them away from you by force, not while men live on Ithaca. But I want to ask you, sir, about your visitor. Where did he come from? What port does he call home? Where are his ancestral fields? Did he bring news of your father's coming, or was he here on business of his own? He's sure up and left in a hurry, wouldn't stay to be known, yet by his looks he was no tramp. 
and Telemachus with a sharp response. Eurymachus, my father, is not coming home. I no longer trust any news that may come, or any prophecy my mother may have gotten from a seer she summoned up to the house. My guest was a friend of my father's from Taphos. He says he is Mentes, son of Antilius, and captain of the seafaring Taphians. Thus Telemachus. But in his heart, he knew, was an immortal goddess. And now the young men plunged into their entertainment, singing and dancing until the twilight hour. They were still at it when the evening grew dark, then one by one went to their houses to rest. Telemachus' room was off the beautiful courtyard, built high with a surrounding view. There he went to his bed, his mind teeming, and with him, bearing blazing torches, went the true-hearted Eurycleia, daughter of Ops, and Pisonor's granddaughter. Long ago, Laertes had bought her for a small fortune when she was still a girl. He paid twenty oxen and honored her in his house as he honored his wedded wife, but he never slept with her, because he would rather avoid his wife's wrath. Of all the women she loved Telemachus the most, and had nursed him as a baby. Now she bore the blazing torches as Telemachus opened the doors to his room and sat on his bed. He pulled off his soft tunic and laid it in the hands of the wise old woman, and she folded it and smoothed it and hung it on a peg beside the corded bed. Then she left the room, pulled the door shut by its silver handle, and drew the bolt home with the strap. There Telemachus lay wrapped in a fleece all night through, pondering the journey Athena had showed him. <laughs>